the whole of the teaching of the Buddha is divided into three parts. In Pali, Sila Samadhi and Panya, moral conduct, concentration and wisdom. I haven't spoken about moral conduct yet. I will tonight. Concentration we have dealt with at length. As much length as is available in a few days. The concentration and everybody comes forward to the meditation courses. And that results eventually in meditative absorption. Absorption can be short or long, and it can be initial or extended and advanced. I have explained the first four absorptions. There are four more. They'll have to wait. Panya, wisdom, is just another word for insight, vipassana. And as I have said many times already, it doesn't work without concentration. But it is eventually a result of good concentration. Naturally, it needs moral conduct also as a support system and that I have so far touched upon as our purification. A purification which eventually makes it quite habitual to have moral conduct. Wisdom or insight is usually considered to be the result of the other two. And therefore it is mentioned as the third one. Moral conduct, concentration, wisdom. However, in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, it comes at the beginning. Now, I mentioned to you last night that the Four Noble Truths are the essence, the hub of the Dhamma wheel to which all spokes lead. It is, so to say, a succinct telegram-style explanation of the whole path. Everything is included in it. And often people who don't take a closer look think it's pessimistic because it talks about dukkha. It's actually exactly the opposite. But it says, because it says we can get out of it. In the first instance, it's realistic. It says, don't try to imagine that you can escape from it. You've got it. But, there is a way out. It's not an escape route. It's a wisdom route, an insight route. So the first two 
of the Four Noble Truths I've already discussed last night, Dukkha and its cause. The third one does not warrant discussion, that only warrants the experiencing of it, namely Nibbana, the freedom. But the fourth one, the Noble Eightfold Path, the path to get there, that is a very important aspect of the teaching. And, interestingly enough, it starts out with wisdom. And wisdom <coughs> is described as right view and right intention. Those are the first two steps on the Noble Eightfold Path. The word right is always Sama. So everything on that Noble Eightfold Path starts out with Sama. And right view is called Samaditi, right view, Ditti. But when we say just Ditti, which actually just means you, it always means wrong view. And the Buddha gave a discourse, the Brahmajala Sutta, the very first one in the Diganikaya and the long discourses, that means the net of views. And in that, he gave a list of 62 views that people can have, which are sort of headings for all the views that are possible. And every one of them is wrong. And the reason every one of them is wrong is not because they're stupid, not at all. It's because each one of them is colored, or I should say discolored, by our ego delusion. Every view has our personal interest embedded in it. And because of that, it can't be absolutely right. And therefore, the Buddha said many, many times that it's best to approach the search for absolute truth and the search for the escape from dukkha, the total elimination of dukkha rather, without any viewpoints. Now obviously most people find that very difficult. In fact, most people have an overload of viewpoints. And the reason for that is because they have a, they appear to be a foundation for the me. I believe, I know, I do, I become, I will, I won't, I have, I won't have, I can, I can't, and all the rest of it. And because of all that conglomeration of viewpoints, we don't have an opening to drop all that, to find right view. So we need to practice. And eventually, as we practice, and we experience ourselves in the way we really are, instead of in the way we think we are, we will come nearer to right view. Everybody has a certain idea 
how and who they are, male, female, butcher, baker, tinker, tailor, handle maker, lawyer, accountant, secretary, mother, father, daughter, son, lover, hater, anything, whatever it is, beautiful, ugly, rich, poor, medium, knowledgeable, stupid, whatever. Whatever it is we think about ourselves, we've got our whole conglomeration of identifications that make up this me. And should we lose one of them, because everything's impermanent, for a little while we feel as if the rug has been pulled out from under us. Should we lose the identification of lover or husband or wife or whatever it happens to be, or secretary or boss, or which we should lose that identification for just a little while because of the change that has happened, tragedy. The ego all of a sudden finds there's a little hole somewhere in its support system. So it has to find a replacement for that identification. And haven't we all done that? And that identification system, which is the support for the ego, prevents us from seeing things clearly. These are our views. The, that was the Buddha described as wrong views. He had different names for them, but that's what it amounts to. We have this viewpoint of being somebody, being something, and having all this kind of embellishment, which makes it quite clear that we must be somebody. There is no doubt about it, because there is all that identification. And then sometimes we become sick and tired of too many of those identifications. We feel that we're overloaded and overburdened. We feel that there's too much to do and then we'd like to drop a few, get rid of a few of those uh, duties and responsibilities with which we identify. And so we might be able to do that. Sometimes we can. It doesn't change a thing. It just gives us a little more free time, that's all. It doesn't change anything in our identification system because the new identification is, I have more free time. <laughs> That's all that happens. Of course, it's quite nice to have more free time, but mostly that free time is then used to find something to do with it, something useful, which has nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't get us to write you. It still keeps us on the surface of it all. And when we are on that surface, we need to dive down a little deeper into ourselves. So, right view is the beginning of the whole Noble Eightfold Path, which is interesting enough because the other steps come later then. So, it really amounts to the fact that we need to have right view in order to even get 
started on the spiritual path. If we don't have that much pride, you are not going to get started. And we can see that in the world quite clearly because most people don't. It's a minority. Even though we might only know and have friends among meditators, the minority of, uh, amongst these billions of people that live on the planet, I think it's five billion, the minority is on a spiritual path. So right view is lacking in most people. Now the one who sees there is something that needs to be done has already that much right view. But right view also contains recognizing cause and effect. And that's not so easy. And when we see cause and effect a little more clearly than we usually do, the result will be right intention, which is the next step on the Noble Eightfold Path. So cause and effect has its first basis in karma. Now the word karma, obviously, is a foreign word, and it has become quite uh, embedded in our language, but it still is bandied about in certain ways which are not quite uh, correct. Actually, all it means is, as you sow, you will reap, which is exactly the same thing. And when we know that, we might be a little clearer on what karma is. Very often, karma is considered to be something that we bring with us, that we can't do anything about. People will say, oh, it's just my karma. Well, people said that in the Buddha's time too. And he denounced that as a very wrong view because that's fatalistic. That's like believing in fate. And he said that's one wrong view, that everything is fate and there's nothing to be done. And then one says, seriously, or maybe not so seriously, oh, well, it's just my karma, that is in that direction. Another wrong belief, which was prevalent in the Buddha's time, and which is not unusual today either, is that there are no results. doesn't matter what we do everything is going to go wrong anyway. Or it doesn't matter what we do, might as well have fun. One lives only once. That's the hedonistic viewpoint, also prevalent in the Buddhist time. And the other one, well, what's there to do? Everything is in a mess anyway. Now, that too is a kind of abnegation of personal responsibility. Not so much maybe personal responsibility in one's daily life, although that may be a result of that, but personal responsibility for one's own spiritual path and growth and personal responsibility for being a part of the whole and every path that changes, changes the whole. So, 
Karma, the Buddha said, Karma, O monks, I declare is intention. So we can see from that that we have to watch the mind first because that's where the intentions are. And as we watch our mind and change our thought processes, just as we have already discussed as the purification system of the four supreme efforts, then speech and action will follow accordingly. These are our three doors. Thought, speech, and action. Thought starts. Speech comes from it, and then action. We make karma with every thought. Naturally, although it is the trigger for the whole thing, the instigator, the thought, the thought itself is the weakest karma. The speech is already stronger and the deed is the strongest. If we think a thought of great hate but don't say anything about it and don't follow through on it, like, if this person ever comes near me again, I'm going to kill him. It's certainly bad karma, but it doesn't have the deep, really cutting effect that maybe the words would have if that person does come and we say that to that person. Not only would we lose a friend, we'd lose our reputation if this person tells it to others, and we have made a statement a strong statement which has a strong reaction in the mind processes. But now imagine one goes about actually doing it. The result is really tragic. The same is on the other side. If we have a nice thought, we might think, I should really show my mother that I love her. should buy her a present. Very nice thought. Nothing is said, nothing is done. Well, it's good karma, but not very strong. And then we actually go to our mother and tell her that. Say, I really like to show you that I love you. I want to buy you a very nice present. I should be delighted. But the present is never forthcoming. So obviously, it's a bit disappointing. But then we actually go and do it. Not only have we shown that we follow through on our thought, but also we have reduced egocentricity because we have acted for another. So thought being the instigator needs to be watched carefully, if it's unwholesome, to substitute, but if it's wholesome, to follow through on it. If we are convinced that causes have effects and 
it would probably be quite unusual not to be convinced of that. Then we need to watch ourselves constantly because we are making all the effects in our life because we are causing the causes. Now, quite truly, it is so that karma is totally impersonal. It's not crime and punishment. It's just cause and effect, totally impersonal. But because it's so impersonal, it always happens. And because of that, we do bring some of that with us. There's no doubt about it. But it's useless to even investigate or think about it because it's all gone, it's in the past. And certainly it will have some repercussions in the future, but what's the use of thinking about that? The only thing that needs attention is each momentary thought, speech and action. That's all that needs attention. Because that is what we're doing now, of which we then are the heirs which we inherit. So what we can do in order to make it easy on ourselves, rather than having these hazy ideas about what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future, is look at each day as our whole life. And in actual fact, that is so. In the most absolute fact, each second is our whole life, each millisecond. Because in each millisecond, whatever arises passes away and something new is born. But this is difficult to handle in daily life. One can handle that in a very concentrated meditation but in daily life we can't be concerned with every millisecond. So it's best to look at one's life as one day in one's life. That's it. That's all there is to it. That's the one we can deal with. The past, how can we deal with it? It's done with. The future, what are we going to do about it? When it comes, it's always called the present. When tomorrow actually arrives, it's called today. As long as it's called tomorrow, it's just a thought and no real experience. So when we have that in our mind, that this is the whole of it, this one day, and we become used to mindfulness, to paying attention to our thought process and to the content of the thought, then we will be concerned with the fact that the wholesome thoughts, the ones that are not negative, not angry, not resisting, rejecting, are making good karma. And the more good karma one makes, the more opportunities we have in life. The less good karma we make, the more we get closed up into um, personal prisons. One can look at it as if good karma produces a huge house with many doors and windows. 
And the opportunities then have to be checked out too, so that we recognize that which is wholesome. The reason we should not think about the past of our karma are the words of the Buddha who compared karma to a spider's net, where the threads are so interwoven that one cannot find beginning nor end. It is impossible to know exactly what brought us to this moment. The only thing that we can know exactly is whether we're making good or bad karma each moment. That we can know by being attentive. And any negativity, anything, even a small one, makes good karma. Any bad karma, any positivity, even a small one, makes good karma. So our daily lives are usually concerned with small matters. We don't have such huge peak experiences in daily life maybe once in a while. So we need to watch all the small happenings because they too create our whole situation. The Buddha said that if one, one person makes bad karma, it could be like having a spoon of salt put into a cup of water. And if another person makes bad karma, it could be like putting a spoon of salt in the Ganges River. Now, if we've only made good karma to the amount of a cup of water, then bad karma is going to make that cup totally impalatable. It's going to be awful. But if we've made good karma, to the amount of a whole river, then that one bad karma is not going to change anything. It's not going to be noticeable. And that's why we probably have seen that known people who seem to do a lot of terrible things and their lives are wonderful. And then we have seen other people who seem to be so nice, so kind, and their lives always seem to go wrong. There's always something wrong. Somebody's sick, lose all their money, can't get up on their feet, and yet they seem to be very nice people. Whatever it is that has caused that has been their karma-making. The more good karma they make at this time, the more opportunities they're having. This does not prevent us from helping those people who need help. But it will prevent us from having guilt feelings, which is not unusual, about other people whose lives don't seem to function properly. But nobody is guilty, neither we nor others. It's a totally impersonal flow, cause and effect. That's all it is. And if that were not so, if it weren't cause and effect, then it would be a very unfortunate lottery. 
in which some people seem to win and others seem to lose. It seems to be then a universe without any kind of order, totally chaotic. And we try to find reasons for this chaos and try to pinpoint the blame somewhere. People leave their church because they pinpoint the blame somewhere. There's no blame. It's a totally natural and complete law of nature. It's a flow of cause and effect. And if it weren't so, so the chaos which we would live in would be insurmountable. But we don't live in chaos. We live in that which we ourselves have created. Sometimes that can become chaotic, but <laughs> we've created it. It's all our own doing. Recognizing cause and effect in karma making will help us also to realize that there are other causes and effects. One more in karma making. The Buddha said something about the death moment as far as karma making is concerned. But we can use that every night when we go to sleep because that is the moment of a small death. He said like this, imagine that there is a barn full of cows which is locked and when somebody comes to open the door the cow that is nearest the door will go out first. Now if there isn't one nearest the door then the strongest one will go out first. If there isn't a strong, strongest one, then the habitual leader will go out first. And if there isn't such a thing either, they're all going to try to get out at the same time. Bit of chaos there. This is our last thought. The last thought at the door of consciousness with which we go to sleep or with which we die. It's the first one that will arise. Doesn't mean that we can negate all the other karma we have made. But if our last thought at night is one of love, one of peacefulness, one of universal understanding of all dukkha, forgiveness for ourselves and others, that's what we can wake up with. If we haven't got such a thing, then the strongest one, the one that we have habitual. Our habitual thought processes are the ones we wake up with in the morning. And if they are wholesome, that's fine. If they're not, it takes a while to get going again. The mind has to overcome first the negativity with which it has woken up. The same at the death moment. If our habitual thinking during this life has been wholesome and 
loving, that's what we come back with. The third possibility is the habitual leader. So we have that habitual thinking. The strongest one is something that we may have done something particularly good in this lifetime. And we may remember that in the evening when we go to sleep. If we have done some particularly good deed or a particularly bad deed, and if we remember that when we go to sleep at night, that's what we'll wake up with. The same when we die, if we remember the good deed, a particularly good deed. And that's why I mentioned yesterday that we are to remind a person who's dying of all the good things they've done. The mind retains that when it becomes unconscious. And if we haven't had any close thought at the moment of going to sleep or dying, if we haven't had any habitual leader or any strong one, then our thoughts are going around in circles like they often do, and then they go around in circles the next morning too. So we should pay attention to the last thought before going to sleep, just as we should pay attention to the last thought before dying. The mind retains it and brings it along. Now the next morning when we wake up, the thought gives us a direction during the day. doesn't mean that we can lose all the bad karma we've made in the past, but at least we have a good direction. And that's why we're always doing loving-kindness meditation in the evening before going to sleep. Retain that thought in the mind for the next morning. If the loving-kindness is felt and strong, the mind wakes up with that in mind. Cause and effect also show itself in the five khandas, the five aggregates. I've already mentioned the five aggregates, but they are, so to say, one of the most important meditation and contemplation subjects in order to gain wisdom insight. And this cause and effect, karma, and its resultants and the five candles are the third step of insight on a scale of twelve. The first one, mind and body. The second one, all that arises must cease, including each thought, including each breath, including any meditation subject, and the third step of insight is cause and effect. The five khandas, the five aggregates, body is one and four parts of mind. I've already mentioned them, but I will retell them. They're usually 
listed in a different way. They're usually listed in the way of feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. But they happen the other way around. They happen consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formation. But of course, thinking is also a sense consciousness. So it can happen like this. Thinking, feeling, perception, thinking. Thinking, feeling, perception, thinking. And has anybody not noticed that during meditation? That's exactly what happens. And that's what exactly what happens in daily life. And that's how we make up all our viewpoints. You see, there are some viewpoints which, which seem to be very helpful, which seem to be um, affirmations of the good. Well, at least they keep us from making bad karma. But they certainly don't give us wisdom. Wisdom can only be achieved through a complete penetration of what a human being is all about. Of course, when we see ourselves, we see everything. Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monk, lies in this passing long body and mind. Sometimes the Buddha's teaching is accused of being only for the intelligent. Well, that's quite true. And I don't see any problem in that. Because it's usually only the intelligent who are drawn to it anyway. Intelligence is a factor of the mind which helps us to see that that what we have done so far wasn't sufficient. That's right view. So we have five aggregates, body and then four of mind. And it starts out with sense consciousness. And I have used the unpleasant sensation that we get from the sitting position as the example. Because that's a very easy one to see. First is the touch contact of the body. Then comes the unpleasant feeling. Then comes the labeling, which is the perception which says pain. And then comes the re reaction to that, the mental formation which, which says I can't stand that or meditation is not for me, I'm going to try something else, or whatever the mind says. All because we've had touch, contact, and unpleasant feeling. We make karma with the mental reaction. In Pali they're called Sankara, and they're sometimes translated instead of mental formation as karma formation because the mental formation makes the count. And it is the resultant of all the other input. Now, as I've explained already before, our input comes through our senses, including the thinking, until we can get to the point where, in meditation, we can let go of that input and touch upon an inner reality which then gives us the benefit of 
the most delightful sensations and emotions which then also change into different levels of consciousness. That's a total absence of sense contact. In daily life, such absence is not possible. We have sense contact. But the mistake we make is instead of recognizing the fact that our senses have been given to us for survival, we think they are an amusement park. And we try to use them for that. And if we can't get enough through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, then we think it up. And then it becomes fantasy. And as it becomes fantasy, then we are more removed from reality. They're not an amusement park. They haven't been designed for that at all. They were designed for survival. If we didn't see, we were blind, survival is far more difficult. It's possible, but it's more difficult. When we can't hear, it's also more difficult. Certainly we can still survive, but it's very difficult. Should we be out of touch with all our senses, survival becomes a real problem. Now, in the societies of the past, seeing and hearing were absolutely essential for survival because it was necessary. We didn't have any kind of um, protection as we have today in houses and so forth. Now we can manage even with uh, reduced sense contact. But that's all there for. Now that we get some enjoyment or pleasure out of sense contact is also true and not to be shunned. But our search for that is our mistaken view. The search for that pleasure because there is more, much greater pleasure available to us. And when we get caught in the search for that pleasure, we eventually don't find our way out anymore. It's called a thicket or a jungle, and it's like a maze. How does one get out of all that? The offers in our affluent society are so innumerable that we can't even decide anymore what's good and what's bad. It's just there all the time. And to abstain from it seems to be difficult. It is one of the seven ways of losing ignorance, of diminishing ignorance, restraining the senses. Recognizing that our senses are constantly fooling us. The sense contact which we make promise something. The promise is never kept. And because it's never kept, we have to get a new sense contact. And we get so busy doing that that we feel 
the whole world is pushing us here and there and everywhere. Nobody's pushing us, we're pushing ourselves. We're putting pressure on ourselves to get pleasure, enjoyment through a pathway which is impossible. So when we recognize, and I've told you already to do that with seeing, you can do it with hearing, very interesting to do that. When we recognize our sense contact, the feeling, the perception and the reaction, how it plays in the mind, how there's no other way that we can actually ever recognize the sense contact, we may already begin to have right view and not search so much for them anymore. Hearing, for instance, if we hear somebody's words and they're not exactly the way we want them because they're not totally ego-supportive. Immediately there comes an unpleasant feeling and immediately there comes a perception don't like that person. And immediately comes the reaction I'm going to go away. I'm going to leave that person. I can't have anything to do with that person. Dreadful person. And then we look for other people who will agree with us. And if we can't find others, then we'll tell more exaggerated stories so that they will agree with us. All we, all we did was hear something. Now, there are occasions, of course, when words are being spoken which are unpleasant, very unpleasant words are being spoken. And if we can watch the unpleasant feeling which arises without going any further to naming that and reacting to that, then we can also watch the unpleasant feeling cease again. That is the way of... There's another way, two other ways. The next thing is hearing or seeing or any of the sense contact only. The, eye, the ear only hears sound. The eye only sees form and color. So if it becomes really essential, we can hear sound only. Now that's usually done in meditation, when we have to meditate in a place where it's not so quiet as here. But even in a quiet place as here, the mind still makes up stories. Somebody moves near, next to us, moves their legs, and the mind immediately says, can't you sit still? <laughs> been sitting here for, for days already. Never going to learn it. <laughs> Instead of sound only. Just sound. That's all the ear can hear. Now obviously what happens is when there is that sound, the unpleasant feeling, and then the perception, guy is moving or girl is moving, and then the reaction. But we can train ourselves to sound only. 
under many circumstances, and we can particularly learn it during meditation. I already mentioned it about sight. There's only color and shape. The rest is all made up by the mind. We see a person, and oftentimes, people have an immediate reaction to that person. Very beautiful, wonderful. Must get to know that person. Must have a close contact with that person. So nice looking. But that's all made up in the mind. Because there's no reality to it. That's what the mind has made up. Or vice versa. Dreadful looking. Don't want to have anything to do with that. All mind. But nothing to do with the reality. It's the way we see it. Viewpoints. That's all it is. Viewpoints, opinions. And we live by these viewpoints and opinions. And again and again, they fool us. Because the reality never keeps track of that what we've made up in our mind. We always go apart. So it's a very important aspect of purification, of learning cause and effect, of gaining inside wisdom, to know the four parts of mind and to recognize that the sense contact is our constant input with which we then fill the mind with all our opinions and viewpoints. Now because of that we should also be very careful what we put into the mind. Most of the um, things that are shown on television are not worthwhile seeing. They can be very detrimental because the mind has immediately reactions to all that. The things we read, the things we talk about, that's why the Buddha said, noble friends, noble conversation. All of that is our sense contact, what we look at, what we see, what we hear, what we read. And it is very important that we recognize that this is the food we put into the mind. Now, again, that's cause and effect. The food we put into the mind is what we then have to digest. And as we digest it, some of it will stay with us, just like physical food does, and some of it will be excreted. But what we excrete from the mind is usually the outflow, is usually that which comes out in thought, speech, and action. Whereas what we excrete from the body really goes down the drain. But it's exactly the same process. We watch how we feed this body. Everybody has innumerable viewpoints how to feed a body. And some of these viewpoints may actually be correct. So we try to do the best we can. And some of it, the food will go into our bloodstream and some of it will be excreted, but it will certainly have a great effect on this body. 
It's exactly the same with the mind. Everything we take in through the senses is the food for the mind. So we have to watch that and make sure that it is really beneficial. The more we watch that, the easier it is to make good karma because the mind stays on an even level, doesn't get pulled down into some negativity through the sense contact. This is a, also a contemplation and meditation subject, both. To watch in meditation how the contact that you make with the senses creates feeling, creates perception, creates mental reaction. One of the easy sense contacts in meditation is the touch contact, the actual sensation of the body. And as we watch that and become aware of it, we can use that in daily life. And then we can see how that is cause and effect again. The input and then the reaction. If we don't watch ourselves, we'll never be able to see the absolute truth, the absolute reality. There are always going to be difficulties. Now, seeing ourselves is not so easy, but the Buddha's guidelines do help us to do that. The five khandhas with the body, four elements. With the mind, also four elements. That the Buddha's excellent analysis, showing us how we can get in there and not see ourselves as this lump of me, one whole solid being that wants and doesn't want, but see ourselves in our separate parts, the four primary elements in the body, the four aspects of the mind, the four aggregates of the mind, and as we see ourselves as, as those separate parts, our view changes. View of ourselves changes. It becomes less egocentric. It becomes more understanding. We see more of ourselves as something that is happening to us and that we are constantly reacting of what I'm calling the pre-programmed printout. And as we see it, we can stop it. We don't have to have this printer clattering away constantly with our reactions. It's very disturbing and annoying. If you, have you ever sat next to one of these printers that comes from them? It's terrible. Well, the same goes on in the mind. Constant reactions. Clatter, 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 clatter. We don't have to have that going on. We can stop it. But only if we recognize it. And that is necessary and can be done as a meditation and also as a contemplation. And when we see that reaction business, which is always based on pleasant or unpleasant feeling, then we will eventually give up and give in. 
and we let the unpleasant feeling arise and cease and we let the pleasant feeling arise and cease which it will do anyway the only difference is that we now are quite in tune with it we'll let it come and go but before that since it always came and went again we weren't in tune with that we wanted to get rid of the unpleasant one quickly and disliked it entirely and the pleasant one we wanted to keep or get back so we had to make steps take the necessary steps to do that so our whole being has never been in tune or peaceful in the way things really happen and we have probably all tried to be in tune and to be peaceful but the wrong way because it isn't possible to do it through the senses it's only possible to do it by letting it all go by letting it all happen included in the third step of insight is understanding anicca dukkha it's also right view now we have first of all cause and effect of karma we have cause and effect of body and mind and we also have anicca dukkha again cause and effect of body and mind is in the body it's the food which we take in makes this body stay alive and our desire our craving to be makes it in the first place possible to be here and in the mind it's the reaction to the sense contact now i've already talked at length about impermanence and i've already talked at some length about unsatisfactoriness the third characteristic of all that exists is substancelessness now anatta means non-self but it doesn't mean that it only concerns people it means the substancelessness of the universe and the higher jhanas the arupa jhanas make it quite easy to see that but when we haven't got to that we have to do it through cause and effect we have to do it through an understanding and an experience of how we really are that's why it's very important to use the meditation and the contemplation to investigate where is this me sitting now I said already take a zipper open up the body take out all the bits and pieces put them in front of you look at them put the bones next to it and then see where's me and then stick them all back in zip it up again and then say oh there's me again and then see whether that makes any sense find out for yourself and again the same with the mind now these five aggregates are called in Pali the pancha upadana khandas pancha is five upadana is clinging 
and thunders are the aggregates. The five aggregates of clinging. Within them, the me idea arises and stays. Who is thinking? Well, me, of course. Who is feeling? Well, me, of course. Who is this body? Well, me, of course. Who else? Really? This is where our investigation has to lead us. The thoughts that arise in meditation, is it really me wanting them, having them, getting rid of them, or have they arisen and passed away? And if they have arisen and passed away, has me arisen and passed away? Or is it still there? With those bits and pieces of the body, where, in which part, does it say me? Which one has me written on it? Which one of our feelings or sensations has me written on it? Have they arisen and passed away? Has me arisen and passed away? Where is it? Can we find it? Or is it an idea in the mind? An idea in the mind which creates constant problems. It's public and private enemy number one. There is no other enemy. It's the cause for every problem. It's the cause for every war. It's the cause for every crime. It's the cause for every unhappiness. It's the cause for every disgust. The cause for everything that could ever bother us. And there's no me who could possibly have a problem. Who could possibly have any disgust or dislike if there's nobody there nobody there doesn't mean that body and mind disappear body and mind keep sitting on the pillow just as nicely as before but the feeling of such a person is a feeling different from an ordinary feeling, feeling of such a person does not include I am sitting there. That's just sitting. And this is so often, so widely and so profoundly misunderstood that one wonders sometimes why one even discusses it. It's not a matter for intellectual understanding, but it helps to get a grip on it in the mind. Because that what the mind understands and wants to do, it will eventually do. I don't know if you've ever noticed in your life, but those things that you really wanted to do, you actually did. And that's the only thing we'll ever do those that we really want to do. So if the mind gets a grip on the fact where happiness lies 
and understands what to do, it will eventually do it. And that's the only reason for discussing it, because otherwise it has to be experienced. Those that can experience it understand it anyway. This is like a trigger. It is to show that we're making a mistake, we're having wrong view, and this is actually the basis of wrong view. It has, the right view has cause and effect in it, and that's what brings us to practice. But when right view has become complete, then it is also the end of practice, and the end of the Noble Eightfold Path, where it was the beginning when we have to see cause and effect and understand that we've got to do something, then in the end it becomes also the end step because eventually right view means that we view ourselves correctly. We are just as much a physical and mental phenomena as anything that we can possibly think of. And the mental phenomena is totally dependent upon the sense contact as long as it can't meditate properly. And even when it can meditate properly, it still totally depends upon the me illusion. So our deluded thought that we are the crown of creation is Yeah, but that's quite all right what you experience there. You see, that particular one is geared towards getting or diminishing the idea of this body as me. Now, the one that's hovering there is the observer. So you're still having the mind as me, right? So now you've got to do that with the mind. Take it apart into those four aspects of mind and see what happens then. The body is a little easier, actually. So that's quite all right what you did there. That's fine. Now you could see body isn't me. Even when you zipped it up again, was was still not me. <laughs> Sorry? Mm. So then you do it with the mind. Okay? Right. Yes. The emotions goes under the second one. It's actually, it can be the last one as a reaction, but it can also be the second one as a feeling. But mostly it is the last one as a reaction. So it is, if we are very, very um, mindful, we can recognize that it's either pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Right? But, 
If we're not that mindful, we can become aware of its either angry feeling or its um, greedy feeling. And then we give it a name. We can say a dreadful person, and then the mental reaction is, well, of course I have to hate that person. They're, they're terrible. So we may not have seen unpleasant feeling. We may have only seen angry feeling. Or if we have seen unpleasant feeling and then recognize that the reaction is anger, it's easier to get rid of it. So it's a matter of how exact we can pinpoint what's going on. Mm-mm. No, not so like that. Ideas. Ideas, no. That's its object. The thinking part is exactly as the seeing. It's like, it um, goes like this. This I here, yeah? It's the sense space. This is the I object. I being meaning this one here, physical I. I object. When the sense base, the I base, meets the I object, then the I consciousness arises and seeing happens. Now the same happens with mind. When there is an idea in the mind, the mind is the thinking base, the idea is the thinking object. When those two meet, then thinking consciousness starts and thinking results. That's the sense contact. From that thinking comes feeling. That's why I keep saying, think the loving kindness if you can't feel it. From it comes feeling. Then comes naming, perception, comes labeling, and then in this case comes thinking again. Is that clear? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes. That's quite true. You are quite true. The senses are constantly hungry. It's like an, um, like a person who constantly runs to the fridge for nibbling. It's exactly the same thing. The senses are constantly wanting to nibble. But then, when the unpleasant feeling arises from that nibbling, then they don't, then it is not liked by the mind. Then it wants to have something that's pleasant. It's just like when you go to the fridge and you think, oh, this looks very good, and then it turns out to be chili, and you don't like chili, <laughs> you know. So you think, ah, no, not chili, it's rather cheese, you know, and it gets the cheese. So it's a nibbling, it's a constant nibbling. You're quite right. That's a, that's a very profound insight that you notice that, that the senses are hungry. 
is quite true. But then, of course, they also have that discrimination. I'd rather have it nice. That happens then, too. Sometimes it's neutral. I mean, a red piece of plastic might have been neutral if you hadn't thought it should be a flower. Then, of course, it isn't neutral anymore. You see? Now, for instance, it can happen that you look at a flower and you and it's pleasant feeling and then say nice flower and then then the reaction is oh I must touch it and then you touch it and you find out it's made from paper and then the mice says oh terrible it's not real you know so that can also happen but hunger is there that's quite true Sorry, what was that? Yes. Yeah, the touch sensation was unpleasant. If you had known it was paper and if you don't like paper flowers, it would have been unpleasant right away. But if you didn't know it was paper and you still didn't like paper flowers, then the first time it could have been pleasant. But if you know it and you don't like them, maybe you like paper flowers, but if you don't like them, then it's already unpleasant because that's already a, a preconceived notion in the mind. Sure. Yes. The whole thing is run by reaction. That's quite true. Though it, that's the way it is. And the pleasant, unpleasant is totally arbitrary. You might find something today pleasant, which tomorrow you find unpleasant, or even ten minutes later. And that's why we need to look at that to see how we have this preconceived reaction. A lot of it is conditioning, but not all of it, because we can we can be quite uh, open to it without preconceived notion. A lot of it is funny, but not everything. Yeah. Yes. As long as we believe that we are somebody, we have to try to concentrate the mind. And that is done through determination and constant practice. So we have to do that. When we no longer believe that there's anybody here, then if we sit down and concentrate or if we sit down and don't concentrate, it really doesn't make much difference. But as long as we believe that I am somebody, feel it. Not just believe it. I would say I would should say feel it. 
long as we know who's getting up in the morning out of bed, so long we've got to do something about the mind. We've got to keep it, concentrate it, and yes, of course, heeded information, but also have the determination to follow through on that information. You see, the problem you are facing at this particular moment is are like two railroad tracks. One's down here and one's here, or one's here and one's here. The better like this. They never, never um, go across each other. They are always separate. One railroad track is the ordinary, everyday kind of person, like everybody is, who says, I'm going to meditate because I'm going to become concentrated, I'm going to be happy. Right? And then there's this one here that may, of which there are very few, may be fully enlightened, which, which says, there's nothing but body and mind. The two never belong together. So the one who hasn't, isn't over here has to do all the things that are necessary to eventually get over there. So we can't say, because I'm not here, I don't have to do this or that. I know you didn't exactly say that, but it came to sound like that to me in the end. Right. Right. Okay. That's fine. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, I understand what you're saying. That's different. Okay, that's great. What you're saying actually is that because you have gained that insight, the calm has come. That's great. That's excellent. Reinforce that. Reinforce that insight. The more you reinforce that insight, the more you can use it in all aspects of meditation, contemplation and life, the more effect it has. So that, that's very good. I actually was answering to something else, which you didn't really say. <laughs> yes. After you separate the parts of the mind, then what? Then? Wouldn't you end up with the observer? With the observer, yes. Yeah, you've got to find out. That's just what it's all about. See, as long as there is somebody who thinks that he or she is, so long there's craving. So that is the that is the process of the personal experience. First, it's an inquiry, and then it becomes a process of personal experience. I mean, can't be done overnight. It's, uh, what I'm suggesting is inquiry. 
and getting, finding out one's own answer. Just making inquiry, but not just intellectually, like I've been now describing it. Not like that. The inquiry by actually recognizing the parts of the mind, by actually recognizing the parts of the body, that kind of inquiry. Not going around and saying, well, who is it that's doing this? That is not sufficient because it doesn't really give a satisfactory answer. That's all I can do when I explain it, right? But when you want to use it as meditation or contemplation, it's a personal experience of these bits and pieces. Is that clear? Hmm. Yeah, but well, it's, a, it's a process. <laughs> it doesn't happen just like that, at least to hardly anybody. Anything else? Yes. Right. The first step is sensory, second step is emotional, which gives you an immediate understanding that there must be more steps which are further, which go further, and leave those two behind. And um, if you must get addicted to something, it's better to get addicted to that than to many of the things that people are addicted to. But it, it also explains to you that this can't be all there is to meditation. So, next step third step. If you have experienced the joy, you have to go to the next step. Have you experienced the joy? Okay. Next step, contentment, peacefulness. Let the joy go. How long can you stay on it? No, you have to have to be able to enlarge that to something like at least 10-15 minutes. Because it's a it's extremely important um, step on the way because it's supposed to show you that you carry everything you're looking for within already. You don't need all the sensory input in order to experience joy. You've got it within. So the uh, addiction which people have to their sensory input is then substituted by the understanding that you have it within. So you have to enlarge it to 10-15 minutes at least. And having done that, you let go of it and come to contentment which leads to peacefulness. But I think you should be very glad and very grateful and very um, delighted that you have got that far because the uh, experience is certainly new for you, isn't it? Yeah. And I can assure you it's much better to be addicted to the joy in meditation than to the sense input that you get in the world. And there's not a living person that is not addicted to their sense input. 
until they found something else. But you should, um, uh, as I said, enlarge it, and then having done that, which means longer time period, where every time you fall off, put yourself back on again. Don't, uh, you might not have to go through the whole process, just get back on again. You may be able to do that. And then comes the next step. The first two are certainly sensory and emotional. But they show us something very important. That we have it all within us. Anything else? So all the all the me's know now about the non me's, huh? <laughs> We'll say our little verse about the food. And please repeat after me. Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Not for pleasure. Not for indulgence. But only for maintaining this body. So that it endures, for keeping it unharmed, for supporting life, so that former feelings of hunger are destroyed, and new feelings from overeating do not arise. Then there will be for me a lack of godly obstacles. and living comfortably. I think it's a very nice line.